0: Section 0 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung Translated by Constance Ellen Long 1867-1923 to Editor's Preface to the Second Edition The following papers have been gathered together from various sources and are now available for the first time to English readers. The subject of psychoanalysis is much in evidence and is likely to occupy still more attention in the near future, as the psychological content of the psychoses and neuroses is more generally appreciated and understood. It is of importance, therefore, that the fundamental writings of both the Viennese and Zurich schools should be accessible for study. Several of Freud's works have already been translated into English. Dr. Jung's Von Lungen und Symbol der Libido was published in America in 1916 under the title of The Psychology of the Unconscious. That work, read in conjunction with these papers, offers a fairly complete picture of the scientific and philosophic standpoint of the leader of the Zurich School. It is the task of the future to judge and expand the findings of both schools, and to work at the development of the new psychology, which is still in its infancy. It will be a relief to many students of the unconscious to see it in another aspect than that of a wild beast couched waiting its hour to spring. Some readers have gathered that view of it from the writings of the Viennese school, a view which is at most that dangerous thing, a half-truth. In the papers appearing for the first time in this edition, chapters 14 and 15, Dr. Jung develops his ideas of introversion and extroversion, a contribution of the first importance to psychology. He agrees with Freud in regarding the neuroses to be the result of repression, but differs in his view as to the origin of repression, he finds this to lie not in sexuality per se, but rather in man's natural tendency to adapt to the demands of life one-sidedly, according to his type of mentality. The born extrovert adapts by means of feeling, thought being under repression and relatively infantile. The introvert's natural adaption is by means of thought, feeling being more or less repressed remains undeveloped. In either type, the neglected co-function is behind the adapted function. This inequality operating in the unconscious brings about a conflict, which in certain subjects amounts to a neurosis, and in others produces a limitation of individual development. This view shifts the interpretation of repression onto a much more comprehensive basis than that of sexuality, although there can scarcely be a repression that does not include this instinct on account of its deep and far-reaching importance in man. There is no doubt that some, even scientific, persons have a certain fear of whither the study of the unconscious may lead. These fearful persons should be reminded that they possess an unconscious in spite of themselves, and that they share it in common with every human being. It is an extension of the individual. To study it is to deepen the self. All new discoveries have at one stage been called dangerous, and all new philosophies have been deemed heresies. It is as though we would once more consign radium to its dust-heaps, lest some day the new radiancy should overpower mankind. Indeed, this particular thing has proved at once most dangerous and most precious. Man must learn to use his treasure, and in using it to submit to its own laws, which can only become known when it is handled and investigated. Those who read this book with the attention it requires will find they gain an impression of many new truths. The second edition is issued towards the end of the third year of the Great European War, at a time when much we have valued and held sacred is in the melting pot. But we believe that out of the crucible new forms will arise. The study of psychoanalysis produces something of the effect of a war in the psyche, Indeed, we need to make conscious this war in the inner things of the mind and soul, if we would be delivered in the future from war in the external world. There is a parallelism between individual and international neurosis. In the pain of the upheaval, one recognizes the birth pangs of newer, and let us hope, truer thought and more natural adaptations. We need a renewal of our philosophy of life, to replace much that has perished in the general cataclysm and it is because i see in the analytical psychology which grows out of a scientific study of the unconscious the germs of such a new construction that i have gathered the following essays together the translation is the work of various hands the names of the different translators being given in a footnote at the beginning of each essay for the editing i am responsible the essays are as far as possible printed in chronological order and those readers who are sufficiently interested will be able to discern in them the gradual development of Dr. Jung's present position in psychoanalysis. Constance E. Long, 2, Harley Place West, June, 1917 Author's Preface to the Second Edition In agreement with my honored collaborator, Dr. C. E. Long, I have made certain additions to the second edition. It should especially be mentioned that a new chapter upon the concept of the unconscious has been added this is a lecture i gave early in 1916 before the zurich union for analytical psychology it gives a general orientation of a most important problem in practical analysis namely of the relation of the psychological ego to the psychological non-ego chapter 14 has been fundamentally altered and i have used the opportunity to incorporate an article that should describe the results of more recent researches. In accordance with my general mode of working, the description is as generalized as possible. My habit in my daily practical work is to confine myself for some time to studying my human material. I then abstract as generalized a formula as possible from the data collected, obtaining from it a point of view and applying it in my practical work until it has either been confirmed, modified, or else abandoned. If it has been confirmed, I publish it as a general viewpoint, without giving the empirical material. I only introduce the material amassed in the course of my practice in the form of example or illustration. I therefore beg the reader not to consider the views I present as mere fabrications of my brain. They are, as a matter of fact, the results of extensive experience and ripe reflection. These editions will enable the reader of the second edition to become familiar with the recent views of the Zurich School. As regards the criticism encountered by the first edition of this work, I was pleased to find my writings were received with much more open-mindedness among English critics than was the case in Germany, where they are met with the silence born of contempt. I am particularly grateful to Dr. Agnes Seville for an exceptionally understanding criticism in the medical press, my thanks are also due to Dr. T. W. Mitchell for an exhaustive review in the proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research. This critic takes exception to my heresy respecting causality. He considers that I am entering upon a perilous, because unscientific, course, when I question the sole validity of the causal viewpoint in psychology. I sympathize with him, but in my opinion the nature of the human mind compels us to take that final point of view. For it cannot be disputed that, psychologically speaking, we are living and working day by day according to the principle of directed aim or purpose as well as that of causality. A psychological theory must necessarily adapt itself to this fact. What is plainly directed towards a goal cannot be given an exclusively causalistic explanation, otherwise we should be led to the conclusion expressed in Molshot's famous enunciation, Man is what he eats. We must always bear the fact in mind that causality is a point of view. It affirms the inevitable and immutable relation of a series of events, A to B to D to Z. Since this relation is fixed, and according to the viewpoint must necessarily be so, looked at logically the order may also be reversed. Finality is also a viewpoint that is justified empirically solely by the existence of series of events, wherein the causal connection is indeed evident, but the meaning of which only becomes intelligible as producing final effect. Ordinary daily life furnishes the best instances of this. The causal explanation must be mechanistic if we are not to postulate a metaphysical entity as first cause. For instance, if we adopt Freud's sexual theory and assign primary importance psychologically to the function of the genital glands, the brain is viewed as an appendage of the genital glands if we approach the viennese idea of sexuality with all its vague omnipotence and trace it in a strictly scientific manner down to its psychological basis we shall arrive at the first cause according to which psychic life is for the most or the most important part tension and relaxation of the genital glands if we assume for the moment that this mechanistic explanation be true it would be the sort of truth which is exceptionally tiresome and rigidly limited in scope. A similar statement would be that the genital glands cannot function without adequate nourishment, with its inference that sexuality is an appendage function of nutrition. The truth contained in this is really an important chapter in the biology of lower forms of life. But if we wish to work in a really psychological way, we shall want to know the meaning of psychological phenomena. After learning the kinds of steel the various parts of a locomotive are made of, and from what ironworks and mines they come, we do not really know anything about the locomotive's function, that is to say, its meaning. But function, as conceived by modern science, is by no means solely a causal concept, it is especially a final or teleological one. For it is utterly impossible to consider the soul from a causal viewpoint only. We are obliged to consider it also from the final point of view. As Dr. Mitchell also points out, it is impossible for us to think of the causal determination conjointly with a final connection. That would be an obvious contradiction. But our theory of cognition does not need to remain on a pre Kantian level. It is well known that Kant showed very clearly that the mechanistic and the teleological viewpoints are not constituent, objective principles in some degree qualities of the object, but that they are purely regulative, subjective principles of thought, and as such they are not mutually inconsistent. I can, for example, easily conceive the following thesis and antithesis. Thesis. Everything came into existence according to mechanistic laws. Antithesis. Some things did not come into existence according to mechanistic laws only. Kant says to this, Reason cannot prove either of these principles because a priori purely empirical laws of nature cannot give us a determinative principle regarding the potentiality of things. As a matter of fact, modern physics has necessarily been converted from the idea of pure mechanism to the final concept of the conservation of energy, because the mechanistic explanation only recognizes reversible processes, whereas the actual truth is that the process of nature is irreversible this fact led to the concept of an energy that tends towards relief of tension and therewith also towards a definite final state obviously i consider both these points of view necessary the causal as well as the final but would at the same time lay stress upon the fact that since kant's time we have come to know that the two viewpoints are not antagonistic if they are regarded as regulative principles of thought and not as constituent principles of the process of nature itself when speaking of the reviews i must also mention those that seem to me beside the mark i was once more struck by the fact that certain critics cannot distinguish between the theoretical explanation given by the author and the fantastic ideas provided by the patient one of my critics makes this confusion when discussing number dreams the associations to the quotation from the bible in chapter five are, as every attentive reader must readily perceive, not arbitrary explanations of my own, but a cryptomnesic conglomeration emanating not from my brain at all, but from that of the patient. Surely it is not difficult to perceive upon reflection that this conglomeration of numbers corresponds exactly to that unconscious psychological function from which proceeded all the mysticism of numbers, Pythagorean, Cabalistic, and so forth, existent from untold ages. I am grateful to my serious reviewers, and should like here to also express my thanks to Mrs. Harold F. McCormick for her generous help in the production of this book. C. G. Jung, June 1917 Author's Preface to the First Edition This volume contains a selection of articles and pamphlets on analytical psychology written at intervals during the past fourteen years. These years have seen the development of a new discipline and, as is usual in such a case, have involved many changes of viewpoint, of concept, and of formulation. It is not my intention to give a presentation of the fundamental concepts of analytical psychology in this book. It throws some light, however, on a certain line of development which is especially characteristic of the Zurich School of Psychoanalysis as is well known the merit of the discovery of the new analytical method of general psychology belongs to professor freud of vienna his original viewpoints had to undergo many essential modifications some of them owing to the work done at zurich in spite of the fact that he himself is far from agreeing with the standpoint of the school i am unable to explain fully the fundamental differences between the two schools but would indicate the following points the vienna school takes the standpoint of an exclusive sexualistic conception while that of the zurich school is symbolistic the vienna school interprets the psychological symbol semiotically as a sign or token of certain primitive psychosexual processes its method is analytical and causal the Zurich school recognizes the scientific feasibility of such a conception, but denies its exclusive validity, for it does not interpret the psychological symbol semiotically only, but also symbolistically, that is, it attributes a positive value to the symbol. The value does not depend merely on historical causes. Its chief importance lies in the fact that it has a meaning for the actual present and for the future in their psychological aspects. For to the Zurich school, the symbol is not merely a sign of something repressed and concealed, but is at the same time an attempt to comprehend and to point out the way of further psychological development of the individual. Thus we add a prospective import to the retrospective value of the symbol. The method of the Zurich school is therefore not only analytical and causal, but also synthetic and prospective in recognition that the human mind is characterized by cause, and also by fines, aims. The latter fact needs particular emphasis, because there are two types of psychology, the one following the principle of hedonism, and the other following the principle of power. Scientific materialism is pertinent to the former type, and the philosophy of Nietzsche to the latter. The principle of the Freudian theory is hedonism, while that of Adler, one of freud's earliest personal pupils is founded upon the principle of power the zurich school recognizing the existence of these two types also remarked by the late professor william james considers that the views of freud and adler are one-sided and only valid within the limits of their corresponding type both principles exist within every individual but not in equal proportions thus it is obvious that each psychological symbol has two aspects and should be interpreted according to the two principles freud and adler interpret in the analytical and causal way reducing to the infantile and primitive thus with freud the conception of the aim is the fulfilment of desire with adler it is the usurpation of power both authors take the standpoint in their practical analytical work, which brings to view only infantile and gross egoistic aims. The Zurich School is convinced of the fact that within the limits of a diseased mental attitude the psychology is such as Freud and Adler describe. It is, indeed, just on account of such impossible and childish psychology that the individual is in a state of inward dissociation and hence neurotic. The Zurich School, therefore, in agreement with them so far, also reduces the psychological symbol, the fantasy products of the patient, to the fundamental infantile hedonism, or to the infantile desire for power. But Freud and Adler content themselves with the result of mere reduction according to their scientific biologism and naturalism. But here, a very important question arises. Can man obey the fundamental and primitive impulses of his nature without gravely injuring himself or his fellow beings? He cannot assert either his sexual desire or his desire for power unlimitedly, and the limits are moreover very restricted. The Zurich School has in view also the final result of analysis, and regards the fundamental thoughts and impulses of the unconscious as symbols indicative of a definite line of future development. We must admit there is, however, no scientific justification for such a procedure, because our present-day science is based as a whole upon causality. But causality is only one principle, and psychology essentially cannot be exhausted by causal methods only, because the mind lives by aims as well besides this disputable philosophical argument we have another of much greater value in favor of our hypothesis namely that of vital necessity it is impossible to live according to the intimations of infantile hedonism or according to a childish desire for power if these are to be retained they must be taken symbolically out of the symbolic application of infantile trends an attitude evolves which may be termed philosophic or religious and these terms characterize sufficiently the lines of further development of the individual the individual is not only an established and unchangeable complex of psychological facts but also an extremely changeable entity by exclusive reduction to causes the primitive trends of a personality are reinforced this is only helpful when at the same time these primitive tendencies are balanced by recognition of their symbolic value. Analysis and reduction lead to causal truth. This by itself does not help living, but brings about resignation and hopelessness. On the other hand, the recognition of the intrinsic value of a symbol leads to constructive truth and helps us to live. It induces hopefulness and furthers the possibility of future development. The functional importance of the symbol is clearly shown in the history of civilization. For thousands of years the religious symbol proved a most efficacious means in the moral education of mankind. Only a prejudiced mind could deny such an obvious fact. Concrete values cannot take the place of a symbol. Only new and more efficient symbols can be substituted for those that are antiquated and outworn, such as have lost their efficacy through the progress of intellectual analysis and understanding the further development of mankind can only be brought about by means of symbols which represent something far in advance of himself and whose intellectual meanings cannot yet be grasped entirely the individual unconscious produces such symbols and they are of the greatest possible value in the moral development of the personality Man almost invariably has philosophic and religious views of the meaning of the world and of his own life. There are some who are proud to have none. These are exceptions outside the common path of mankind. They miss an important function which has proved itself to be indispensable to the human mind. In such cases, we find the unconscious, instead of modern symbolism, an antiquated archaic view of the world and of life. If a requisite psychological function is not represented in the sphere of consciousness. It exists in the unconscious in the form of an archaic or embryonic prototype. This brief resume may show what the reader cannot find in this collection of papers. The essays are stations on the way of the more general views developed above. C.G. Jung, Zurich, January, 1916 End of section 0